You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this live edition of the American Revolution podcast. I'm coming to you today on July 4th, 2021, the 245th anniversary of Independence Day. I wanted to talk today a little bit about how we got to independence. The move from the colonies to the to becoming an independent nation was not a not a guarantee. Nothing was inevitable. And in fact, up until a few months before we actually declared independence, the majority of the country did not seem terribly excited about the idea. So I wanted to take a look at how we got from there to here. Of course, this is a live episode. I'm more than happy to take your questions about anything at any time. doesn't have to be about the specific thing I'm talking about. doesn't even necessarily have to be about the American Revolution. This is really a, an Ask Me Anything episode, so feel free to chime in. If you're listening on the link, unfortunately, there is only the ability to listen. You don't have the ability to speak back to me. For that, you need to be on the Podbean app, which you can download for free on any Apple or Android device. If you don't have access to either of those things or are like me and just hate downloading new apps onto your device, you're also welcome to tweet me at AmRevPodcast. I will be paying attention to my tweets during the course of this live episode. So feel free to, to reach out to me via Twitter at AmRevPodcast. So, as I said, we're going to talk about how we got from a bunch of colonies that were not particularly interested in independence, but were upset about a few things Britain was doing, to declaring themselves to be free and independent states. Now, one reason there wasn't a whole lot of talk about independence was that Americans were generally happy with British control. They uh, relied on Britain for protection, Britain's uh, army and navy was a defense against encroachment by the French or the Spanish or possibly other European powers that might want to take control of various parts of North America. Britain also provided a huge market for trade. Britain was the recipient of lots of raw materials from the colonies, and that is how a lot of colonists made a living. Up until the French and Indian War, Britain had pretty much followed a policy called salutary neglect, which essentially meant they left the colonies on their own to run their own affairs and only got involved if there was a dispute between colonies or there was a threat from an outside power or some other really major issue that the colonies needed resolved. There were not a lot of taxes. Uh, there were a handful of small tariffs, but these were almost unenforced at all. So it was the best of both worlds for the colonies. They had the protection of Britain, but they didn't have a lot of interference. So what happened? Well, the French and Indian War happened, which removed France from the continent of North America. Britain took control of all of 
what is today Canada, and there was no additional outside threat. At the same time, the American colonies had really developed into some pretty healthy economies by this time and were making good money. And Britain had racked up a ton of war debt from the French and Indian War and its counterpart in Europe, the Seven Years' War. So Britain was looking for ways to pay off its debt. And of course, it didn't want to raise money from its own local taxpayers in Britain. After all, most of the people who voted in Britain were the aristocrats who were sitting in Parliament. They didn't want to raise taxes on themselves. And in fact, they cut taxes. Uh, they cut property taxes shortly after the Seven Years' War ended. So they were looking to the colonies to raise money. After all, the colonies had been a source of a lot of the war costs. Why shouldn't they chip in to pay for some of the things they needed to pay off now? Uh, the first tax that was passed was only a couple years after the war ended. It was the Sugar Act. This was actually a tax cut for the colonies, technically. Uh, the Molasses Act that existed before it had a pretty substantial tax on any sugar or molasses that was imported into the colonies, but the Molasses Act was, as I said, almost not enforced at all. The Sugar Act cut the tax rate, but really took a serious effort at enforcing the taxes. The Sugar Act started to get under the hackles of the colonists. They weren't really sure how they were going to react to it, but it was followed up the very next year by the Stamp Act. And the Stamp Act was a much more intrusive tax. It placed a tax basically on almost anything that was printed on paper. So this could include contracts, magazines, newspapers, legal documents, playing cards, just about anything. The only thing it didn't cover for some reason was books. Because it was a direct tax, the colonists became very nervous. It wasn't a hugely intrusive tax, but it was a, it was a pretty considerable one. And of course, it hit a lot of the people who tend to be best in position to complain, lawyers and uh, newspaper editors. So the stamp tax immediately got a lot of pushback. There were riots, there were mobs, uh, there were petitions to London saying this, this will not stand. And you know, there were several months before, between the time that the stamp act was passed and it was going to be implemented, it gave the colonists time to get organized, to really oppose it and set up boycotts of anything that would involve the use of stamps and also a general trade boycott with Britain. The word boycott didn't actually exist yet. Charles Boycott was a 19th century Irish landowner, but the concept of a boycott, a non-trade agreement, uh, was what they were shooting for. Britain at the time was really highly dependent on colonial trade, and this, this boycott got the attention of local businesses in London who pressured Parliament to repeal the stamp tax, which they quickly did, but then followed it up with the Declaratory Act, which basically said, all right, we're not going to tax you guys right now, but we have the right to anytime we feel like it, which, of course, left the colonies on high alert for future threats to taxation. Now, why was taxation such a big deal? The taxes were not, as I said, very high, overly intrusive. In fact, colonies were generally paying less taxes than their counterparts in Britain at the time. What the colonies feared was taxation without representation. And what this essentially meant was, as I said at the beginning, Parliament had actually just cut taxes in England because the voters didn't want high taxes. 
Well, there was no such check on colonial taxes because there were no voters in the colonies. So even though this might have been a relatively small tax, once you allowed that principle of you can tax us, but we have no vote to stop you, those taxes could go up and up and up. And colonists only had to look at what Britain was doing in other parts of the empire, including Ireland or Bengal, to see how they were pretty much systematically stripping out all excess wealth and keeping the people who lived in those localities on a bare subsistence level. And they did not want to see that happen in America. So anyway, as I said, the, the king repealed the stamp tax pretty quickly and everything returned to normal. A few years later, though, they passed the Townsend Acts, which Britain had listened to the Americans and said, all right, this isn't a direct tax. It's a tariff like the sugar tax. It's a tax on trade. You said we can tax trade. Uh, but they put at least a tax on a whole bunch of different trade goods. And the Americans once again complained. This time they came up with the argument that taxes for the purpose of regulating trade were okay, but taxes for the purpose of raising revenue in the colonies raised that whole same taxation without representation problem. And they raised a whole bunch of protests again and threatened boycotts. And once again, after a short time, Parliament backed down. This time, however, they didn't back down completely. They mostly repealed the acts, but they left a nominal tax on a couple of things, notably tea. A few years go by as kind of a standoff between the colonies and the home country. And the East India Company, which brings all the tea from China to the British Empire, uh, started to suffer a very serious setback, uh, mostly because of problems in India. Now, India at this time did not produce any tea. Uh, that was a 19th century uh, development. All tea came from China, but the East India Company did have a large presence in India, and they had suffered some poor weather problems there, went through some droughts, and there were very serious financial problems. Now, most members of parliament actually owned stock in the East India Company and relied on the dividends from those stocks for keep up their lifestyles. When the East India Company was unable to do that, that really got the attention of a lot of members of parliament, and they passed the Tea Act, which was a partial takeover of the East India Company, but it also tried to do a lot of things to help the company survive and thrive. And one of the things they did was eliminate a lot of the restrictions on the tea trade. Tea at the time had to be brought from China into London where it was taxed, where it was repackaged, and then it was reshipped out to the colonies. And that process of taxing it at several different steps, which actually made the taxes on the tea more than 100% of the price of the original tea, and the fact that it had to go through several ships and be transferred by hand off and on those ships just added a whole lot of cost to the tea. As a result, British tea in America was a lot more expensive than tea that they could just smuggle in from Dutch trading companies. With the changes, they allowed the East India Company to bring tea directly to America, bypassing a lot of those taxes and tariffs, and sell it at a much cheaper cost that was really competitive with the smuggled tea from Dutch companies. The problem with this is that part of the Tea Act required that there was a minimal nominal tax that had to be paid by the purchaser in the colonies when the tax was received. Now, they could have just added this tax to be paid by the East India Company 
before the tea even reached the colonies, and it wouldn't have been a problem. But Parliament wanted to set a precedent. They wanted to set the precedent that they were allowed to impose tariffs on the colonies, and the colonies would have no say on the matter. Now, they figured the colonies would say, hey, the tea is cheaper anyway, even with the tax. Why not just go along with it and, you know, enjoy the cheap tea? Of course, the leaders, again, saw this as a problem. Once we let that door open, once we accept the idea that taxes on imports are okay for purposes of raising revenue, there'll be no end to the matter. They can just raise the rate again and again and again. And at that point, there's no principle to fight over. It's just we don't like paying so many taxes. So they had to fight the, the um, import of the tea. And they got all sorts of people to agree not to import it. They got people who had agreed to act as agents for the tea to pull out of that agreement. And tea was delivered to many different parts of the colonies. And in most places, they were able to turn it around and force the ships to go back without landing. That did not happen in Boston. In Boston, the ships came in. And once the ship came into port, the tariff had to be paid. And it had to be paid, I think, within 30 days, or the tea would be forfeited and then it would be sold to collect the tax money anyway. So the Americans really had no way out of this. They tried to work with the governor to get him to let the ships leave, and the governor would have none of it. He wanted to enforce this precedent and make the tea tax be paid. And of course, the day before the 30 days was over, uh, the Americans decided to dump the tea in the harbor to prevent any tax from being paid on it. And of course, that became known later as the Boston Tea Party. Now, this made the British in Parliament apoplectic. The destruction of that tea, even though the East India Company was technically a private company, was seen as a direct attack on British authority. And Britain at that point, we're talking 1774 now, passed the Coercive Acts, sometimes called the Intolerable Acts, which essentially took away a lot of the rights of the Massachusetts colony to rule itself. It outlawed town meetings, it closed Boston Harbor, it created more appointed positions and less elected positions within the colony. And that was really meant to send a message to all the colonies. If you don't behave and follow the law, this is what can happen to you. And the colonies did take notice, not in the way that London expected, though. They expected the colonies to all back down and behave and be good little boys and girls and start obeying for fear of punishment. Instead, the colonies looked at this and said, if this could happen to Massachusetts, it can happen to any of us. We have certain guaranteed rights in our colonial charters. And the king is basically saying, and Parliament and the Privy Council are all saying, we can overrule those charters at any time with a wave of our hand and take away any rights we want to. And that just was completely unacceptable. So you see active military resistance happening in Massachusetts, men taking up arms, training as militia, being prepared to threaten the British government. And in fact, the British tried to shut down several town meetings and just the militia turning out with force of arms forced the British army to back down and retreat from doing so. And the British army ended up getting stuck pretty much in Boston and leaving the rest of the colony on its own. At the same time, the rest of the colonies uh, met in Philadelphia at the First Continental Congress to say, hey, this removal of our charter rights is completely unacceptable. 
And they sent a series of petitions to the king and parliament saying, listen, we need to work this out. These are what we're looking to, to resolve, the, the issue of taxation without representation, the rights protection of our colonial charters, the restoration of rights. And if you don't do it, we're going to engage in more trade boycotts. Well, this was 10 years after the first trade boycotts that worked for the Stamp Act and the Townsend Act. By this time, many of the merchants in England had diversified their trade relationships, so they weren't as dependent on the American colonies as they were before. And so when the threat of trade boycotts came along, many more people in Britain were willing to say, yeah, boycott all you like. This is the law. You're going to follow the law. So it didn't work out as well as they had hoped. Even so, I, what I want to really make clear here is there was no expectation that these protests would lead to independence. These were Englishmen in the colonies fighting for their rights as Englishmen. There is a letter from a delegate from the First Continental Congress, and I'll just read a, a short quote from it. A colleague of his had asked if there was any talk of independence at the First Continental Congress, and this is his response. I was involuntarily led into a short discussion of this subject by your remarks on the conduct of the Boston people and your opinion of their wishes to set up for independency. I am well satisfied as I can be of my existence that no such thing is desired by any thinking man in all North America. On the contrary, that it is the ardent wish of the warmest advocates for liberty that peace and tranquility upon constitutional grounds may be restored, and the horrors of civil discord prevented. Now, you might say that was just one delegate's position, maybe not one of the hardliners, but I should mention that the delegate who wrote that was none other than George Washington of Virginia. So the First Continental Congress, there was really no interest in independence, and they sent several petitions to the king and parliament and just if you look at the, the words used in the petition, it's very clear that they were trying to resolve this problem in a peaceful way while still you know, getting what they thought they needed out of it. At the end of the petition, they, they added the following couple of sentences. We, therefore, most earnestly beseech your majesty that your royal authority and interposition may be used for our relief and that a gracious answer may be given to this petition, that your majesty may enjoy every felicity through a long and glorious reign over loyal and happy subjects, that your descendants may inherit your prosperity and dominions till time shall be no more, and always will be our sincere and fervent prayer. That does not sound like a group of men who are ready to break with the king. The First Continental Congress, as I said, wanted restoration of their colonial rights and was looking to the king to be the arbiter with parliament to resolve this problem. Continental Congress disbanded in late fall 1774 and left plans to meet again for a second Congress in May. They were basically hoping by that time to get a response from London and to see what next steps might be needed. If, the, if London didn't completely agree to all of their requests. Of course, by the time the Second Continental Congress met in May 1775, uh, Lexington and Concord had already put the continent at war. So when the delegates arrived back in Philadelphia, uh, they were essentially on a war footing and 
kind of behind the eight ball trying to figure out what steps they could take next to stop this before it really got crazy and out of hand. The delegates from New England were at the point where they really thought, this is war, we've got to fight the war. But they had to worry about the mid-Atlantic states and the southern state well, colonies, not states yet, worry about them being on board with all this and that they would put up a united front. So that was the big fight of the early part of the Second Continental Congress in 1775. Many in Congress still hoped that they could resolve this peacefully. They passed uh, yet another petition, hoping that the king would still interpose himself and that uh, they, they could resolve this without it becoming full-blown treason. And near the end of 1775, though, this really began to change. Uh, many credit Thomas Paine, who released a pamphlet called Common Sense near the end of the year. This pamphlet, which was very widely read, very popular, basically made the argument for independence, saying that a tiny island should not be able to rule an entire continent. The size of the two just didn't make sense. And secondly, it was a direct attack on monarchy. You know, why do you guys get to make the rules just because your dad got to make the rules before you? That's no way to run a government. So these events had a big impact, but even the fact that they were now at war and that a few radicals were calling for independence probably did not move the mass majority of the population to favor independence and probably not even the majority of delegates at the Second Continental Congress. What really changed it was the next actions of King George III. Uh, King George III received this final petition from the Second Continental Congress and rejected it out of hand. It came from an illegal body. Uh, we're not going to respect it. He saw what was happening in Massachusetts, Lexington and Concord, the siege of Boston that was going on by this time, as outright rebellion against his authority. And a king could not tolerate or negotiate with rebellion. It requires firm military action. And once we put down this rebellion, then we can talk about being nice and maybe you guys receiving the king's mercy. But until then, this was war. It was rebellion, and it had to be dealt with as such. He gave a speech to the opening of Parliament in the fall of 1775, outlining this. And when word of that got back to America at the end of 1775 and into early 1776, they realized that there was not going to be a negotiated solution to this dispute, that they could either surrender and pray to the king for mercy, or they could declare independence. Those were really the only two options that the delegates saw by this time. By early 1776, many of the delegates who had attended the Continental Congress and who were against independence uh, saw the writing on the wall. They saw that London was calling the Congress an illegal body, and that when they crushed this rebellion, it could very well be that the members of that illegal body would be hanged as the leaders of the rebellion. So many of the leaders who opposed independence left Congress, and many of them were loyalists. Joseph Galloway is a great example of this, who ended up supporting the, the British later in the war. There were, however, many moderates. There were moderates and radicals at this point. Uh, the radicals were ready to declare independence. Most of New England was on board with all that. Many of the southern colonies were as well. 
The moderates, however, were not. The moderates still hoped against hope that they might be able to come to some negotiated solution. And as I said, we saw the Olive Branch petition being sent out, but nothing would come of that. So by this point, we're up to May 1776, a couple of months before the declaration. John Adams had been attempting to push through an independence resolution. He first tried this in May in a kind of a sneaky way. Uh, they wanted to pass a resolution because most of the colonial governments in the colonies had been forced to leave. The colonial governments had their governors had either been taken prisoner or were sitting on ships off the coast or had returned to London. So there was no operating colonial government. So Adams got Congress to pass a relatively bland statement that basically said, if you don't have a working government, we need to create a temporary one so that we can continue to, you know, not to send into chaos and operate like a civilized state. Uh, the official wording was, where no government sufficient to the exigencies of their affairs have been hitherto established to adopt such government as shall, in the opinion of the representatives of the people, best conduce to the happiness and safety of their constituents in particular and America in general. Okay, so basically we want to create a workable government that keeps the people happy. Now, Congress passed that. Then a few days afterward, Adams added a preamble to the resolution, which nobody had yet seen. The preamble said, Whereas his Britannic Majesty, in conjunction with the Lords and Commons of Great Britain, has by a late act of Parliament excluded the inhabitants of these united colonies from the protection of the crown, and whereas no answer whatever to the humble petitions of the colonies for redress of grievances and reconciliation with Great Britain has been or is likely to be given, but the whole force of that kingdom, aided by foreign mercenaries, is to be exerted for the destruction of the good people of the colonies, and whereas it appears absolutely irreconcilable to reason and good conscience, for the people of these colonies now to take the oaths and affirmations necessary for the support of any government under the crown of Great Britain, and is necessary that the exercise of every kind of authority under said crown should be totally suppressed, and all the powers of government exerted under the authority of the people of the colonies for the preservation of internal peace and good order, as well as the defense of their lives, liberties and property against the hostile invasions and cruel deprivations of their enemies and therefore resolved. So basically, Adams was trying to turn was a, what was a relatively bland proposal to create temporary governments by the people into a rejection of the crown and we're now essentially creating independent governments. And this caused a huge amount of dissension within Congress and the Maryland delegation even walked out entirely. They wanted no part of this. They left the Second Continental Congress. So it wasn't until a few weeks later that Congress decided to address the question of independence in a more direct way. On May 15th, the same day that Adams introduced his controversial preamble, the Virginia Convention passed a resolution for Congress to consider. And this resolution reached Congress a few weeks later. On June 7th, a Virginia delegate, Richard Henry Lee, offered the resolution to Congress. And this was a straightforward resolution that said, Resolve that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, 
and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, that it is expedient forthwith to take the most effectual measures to forming foreign alliances, and that a plan of confederation to be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for their consideration and approbation. So this was Virginia getting on board with independence. Now, when this proposal came out, or shortly before it was released to Congress, Adams had written a letter to James Warren, who was president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress at the time. He was giving his assessment of where all the colonies stood on independence. Again, this was May 1776. He thought that New England, that is Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, would support independence. He also thought that the southern colonies, uh, Virginia, North and South Carolina, and Georgia, were also pretty likely on board. However, the middle colonies, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland, all at the time still had instructions to oppose independence. In other words, the state governments or the colonial governments that were in charge had instructed delegates to oppose independence at all costs. So after Lee made this resolution in early June, Congress immediately tabled the proposal for three weeks so that delegates could go home and confer with their local leaders and decide whether they could have their instructions changed. In the meantime, a drafting committee began work on a declaration just in case the vote for independence passed. I want to take a quick look at the state of the middle colonies, the ones who were most resistant at this time to taking the great step toward independence. You had Pennsylvania, which before the dispute was a proprietary colony, it was run by the Penn family. There was no provincial congress at this time. There was only a radical committee, a committee of 100, that really had no legal basis for existing that represented the most radical elements for war and independence. There was still a colonial assembly that was dominated by Quakers and pacifists who supported the king. There were some radicals like Charles Thompson who were pushing for independence. Many of these radicals attempted to vote in a pro-independence slate into the legislature in May, but they lost. There was a high level of Quaker turnout for this election, and many of the patriots had already left to serve in the Continental Army. There was no such thing as absentee ballots or mail-in ballots at the time, so the vote was overwhelmingly loyalist. By the way, Thompson kept really amazingly detailed notes about all the political machinations that went on, not only in the First and Second Continental Congress, but the entire time through the Constitutional Convention. Really uh, an amazing, thorough eyewitness view of the political deals and backroom dealing that was going on during this time. And near the end of the life of his life, he took all of his notes and tossed them into a fireplace. He decided it would be better for history to remember Congress as idealistic heroes rather than the wheeler dealers with, and, and that his insider information would destroy that view. So Thompson, the great patriot, did what he thought best for his country, but not so much a friend for historians. The Quakers in Pennsylvania, as I said, were very strongly supportive of the king. Many people think that they were just pacifists who were opposed to war generally, which they were. But Quakers, the Society of Friends, also sees the support of the existing government as a religious duty. On January 20th, 1776, the Society's elders issued a public declaration which said in part, 
in setting up and putting down kings and governments is God's peculiar prerogative for causes best known to himself, and it is not our business to have any hand or contrivance therein, but to pray for the king and the safety of our nation and good of all men, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty under government which God is pleased to set over us. So, yeah, Quakers are very set in the theory of the divine right of kings. Kings are kings because God wanted them to be, and it's not for us mortals to question that. So, as I said, the Quakers won the election, the loyalists were in charge, but the radicals were not deterred. Responding to a, that resolution I talked about before, where John Adams tried to add that hostile preamble that said governments needed to create new governments, a group of 4,000 radicals met in front of Independence Hall. Of course, it was not called Independence Hall at the time. It was the Pennsylvania State House, both the Continental Congress and the legislature for the colonial legislature for the state of Pennsylvania met in the building. The radical mob listened to speeches by some radical delegates, including Thomas McKean, who not only wanted independence, but a completely new government for Pennsylvania. And they called for a new constitutional convention to replace the Pennsylvania Assembly. The Committee of 100 then called for an election of delegates to the convention. Now, what legal basis did they have for this? Really none. Uh, they were simply counting on the people to support it and for the government to have no power to obstruct it. Although the momentum seemed to be in the favor of the radicals, the leaders set up the convention to essentially assure, ensure the result they wanted. First, they gave equal representation to each county. This gave far more power to the less populated western counties, where radical sentiment was far more popular. Second, they required that all delegates forswear allegiance to the king and support whatever government the people chose. So Quakers and Tories who were unwilling to consider the possibility of ditching the king were not even allowed to participate in the convention. Third, they opened up voting to any male over the age of 21 who had been assessed for taxes. There was no minimum property requirement, and this increased the adult male voter pool from between 50% to 90% across the state, much larger voter pool than typically voted in colonial elections. Now, seeing the radicals make a move toward ending the assembly, many representatives began to move toward the radical camp. Pennsylvania formally withdrew its instructions to the Continental Congress to oppose independence, but it also didn't issue new instructions. In other words, the delegates were able to decide for themselves, and a majority of the delegation opposed independence four to three. In the end, two of the opponents, John Dickinson and Robert Morris, left before the vote, thereby allowing the delegation to support independence by a vote of three to two. Both of these men realized that the change was going to happen soon anyway. Even if they were not ready to cast the vote, they saw value in allowing Pennsylvania to join the other colonies in backing independence. So Pennsylvania is on board for independence now by the end of May, early June of 1776. Now, New Jersey was also in a period of transition. The colony had a strong loyalist population and could really go either way. Uh, the royal governor, William Franklin, had ended the legislative session in January, and the provincial congress just simply took over the functions of government. When the governor attempted to call the assembly back into session in June 1776, the provincial congress reacted by replacing the royal governor in June and supporting independence. 
Again, did they have any real legal authority to do this? No. They counted on that the fact that the majority of New Jersey would support them and that that was the basis for their actions. They sent the governor to be imprisoned in Connecticut and called for the creation of a new constitution. So, New Jersey on board for independence. Next, we move on to Delaware. Now, Delaware was not really an independent colony before all of this started. They were part of Pennsylvania, but they had uh, their own legislature, which governed the what was called the three counties on the Delaware. They were overall governed by the Penn family that ran Pennsylvania. But since the governor had been overthrown, Delaware had its own legislature and Pennsylvania had its own legislature. So Delaware was kind of pushing not only for independence from Britain, but independence of itself from Pennsylvania. On June 15th, the Delaware Assembly voted for itself to be independent from both Britain and Pennsylvania, but did not instruct its delegates on how to vote. There was a July 1st vote uh, just to see where all the delegates stood. The Delaware delegation was split. There were only two of the three members of the delegation there at the time. Thomas McKean voted for independence. George Reed voted against it. So McKean had to send for the third delegate, Caesar Rodney, who was also serving as a militia officer in Lower Delaware at the time, trying to put down a loyalist revolt. Caesar Rodney made a famous midnight ride through a thunderstorm so that he could get there on July 2nd for the vote in favor of independence. His arrival was celebrated as delegates broke into song and dance at his arrival. At least that's how it's portrayed in the musical 1776. Actual events may have been a little less musical and dramatic. Both Rodney and McKean, as I said, were from southern Delaware, which, as I said, had a heavy loyalist population in it. And the result of their voting for independence, both men lost their seats in the next election. But Delaware had voted for independence. Maryland, as I said, had walked out of Congress on May 15th when Adams had tried to introduce that controversial preamble that smacked of supporting independence. The Maryland Convention received Congress's resolution, then voted unanimously not to create a new government and reaffirmed its loyalty to the king. The planter class in Maryland was strongly loyalist. The patriots mostly came from the merchants in the port cities. Samuel Chase became one of the biggest advocates to get the convention to change its views. On June 21st, the provincial convention recalled the delegates to discuss the matter but wanted an assurance that Congress would not vote on independence while they were away. Since Congress planned to begin debate on July 1st, this wasn't a problem. In the end, the convention approved independence after learning that Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware would support it. The need for unanimity was a strong one among some of the more reluctant voters. So that leaves us with New York. Unlike most other colonists, Loyalists had continued to participate in the provincial congress that had been set up to oppose colonial government. Now, this gave the loyalists a lot more influence in selecting delegates to the Continental Congress who opposed independence, as well as keeping the provincial congress from going, in their view, too far. New York was also facing an imminent invasion at the time. A leader, even open to the idea of independence, might have second thoughts if he believed the British army would soon reassert control over the colony and begin looking for leading traitors to arrest and hang. Conservatives in New York tried to slow down the momentum toward independence, 
After receiving word that the Continental Congress would debate the matter, the Provincial Congress voted that it would not support independence until it took a vote of the people in its colony. And it couldn't take that vote because, well, the British invasion that's about to happen. The Congress ended its session on June 30th without changing its instructions to the delegates to vote against independence. So New York was the only colony to abstain from the July 2nd vote for independence. When the New York Congress learned that all other 12 colonies had voted in favor, it reconvened on July 9th to approve of the vote for independence. So the final version of the declaration as written was able to add the word unanimous. Now, as I said, the vote for independence, that resolution that had been brought by Lee, was voted on and supported by 12 of the 13 colonies uh, in favor of the resolution for independence. Only New York abstained. So what exactly happened on July 4th? Why are we celebrating Independence Day on the 4th of July rather than the 2nd of July? Well, as I said, during this whole debate over independence that had been happening for the last couple of months, Congress had created a committee to draft a declaration in case Congress voted in favor of independence. On the committee were John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, Robert Livingston, and Thomas Jefferson. As the junior member of the committee, Jefferson got stuck writing the first draft. Nobody really thought writing the Declaration was that important. The vote for independence was the important thing. The fact that everybody voted in favor of the actual wording of the Declaration was kind of a trivial afterthought, which is why it really got pushed off on somebody who was not a particularly senior member of Congress. Thomas Jefferson had a reputation as being a good writer, and so he would do the first draft. The members of the committee would look it over, make some changes. It would be submitted to Congress, who would make additional changes. But Jefferson did an amazingly good job. Uh, there were a few things taken out. Most famously, there was a provision blaming the king for bringing slavery to America. Many people think that was taken out because of a pro-slave sentiment in Congress, and that's partially true. There was, there is, particularly among many of the southern colonies, they were not ready to make this war about slavery. Uh, this is not to say that the war was being fought to protect slavery, but it wasn't being fought to end slavery either. Slavery was an existing condition, and in the interests of unanimity, the issue of slavery was essentially kicked down the road. Uh, the other reason one could make a good argument for removing that was blaming the king for slavery was a bit of a cop-out. The, the colonists had brought slavery into North America, and the king had tolerated it. The king had allowed them to have slavery. So blaming the king for essentially forcing slavery on the colonists was a bit of a, you know, intellectually dishonest accusation. So there was kind of a good reason to bring it out, remove it for that reason alone. The committee finished with its draft in late June, and it presented it to Congress after the July 2nd vote for independence. At that point, Congress did take a couple of days to debate the final wording, uh, which it finally agreed to on July 4th. After it agreed to the wording of the declaration on the evening of July 4th, a draft was given to a local printer by the name of John Dunlop, who produced the first written copy of the document on July 5th, with the date July 4th on the document. Other newspapers began printing it over the next few days, and quickly the declaration spread all up and down the continent. 
Now, there was no official version that was going to be sent to London. That was never planned. This was a declaration to the world, and if anything, was particularly aimed at France. They were hoping by declaring their independence that France would see this as an actual war that they could join, not an internal dispute within the British Empire. There were some British officers who obtained copies of the declaration in the days following its general distribution. Of course, we're all familiar with the signed engrossed copy of what we call the original Declaration of Independence. This was actually drafted several weeks after the fact. It was laid before Congress on August 2nd for the signatures. By the time this final engrossed version was signed, as I said, New York had gotten on board. So the one word that was changed in the declaration was the word unanimous. Most members signed it on August 2nd, but some did not get around to signing it until days later. Uh, there's even some question about one signer that may not have signed for several years. But the date of July 4th appeared on the declaration itself. As a result, we celebrate Independence Day on July 4th. And here we are, 245 years later, still celebrating that important date, which led to the independence of the United States. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, that ends my prepared remarks. I've run about 50 minutes now. I'm trying to see if there are any questions that anyone may have. You can ask me about independence. You can ask me more generally about the American Revolution. You can ask me about podcasting. You can, you know, this is really an ask me anything moment. So if you have any questions at all, I'm more than happy to take them on at this time. I'm just checking my uh, Twitter feed right now to see if anybody has asked a question there. I, as I said, I know it's difficult. I sent out a link. Uh, people can listen to this podcast, but uh, to actually interact with me, you have to have the podcast app on your phone. And I know a lot of people just don't like downloading new apps for that. So I did offer the option of asking questions on my Twitter feed at Amrev Podcast. And I want to see if anyone has lots of 4th of July celebration tweets today, but nothing in particular for me. Um, it very well could be that some of you are trying to ask questions or call in, and I'm not familiar enough with the way my Podbean platform works to uh, pick up on that. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, now's a good time. 
just so you know, I started this podcast. We went live in July of 2017. So we're coming up on our fourth anniversary in a couple of weeks. As you know, I'm generally working through the podcast in chronological order. Today's episode is a bit of a step back. We're up to 1779 at the moment. Uh, but I wanted for this special live episode to really talk about Independence Day and you know what's particular about July 4th. So that's why we're doing this special episode. I do from time to time do special episodes with authors or other experts on the American Revolution. Those are usually discussions. And of course, those are not in any chronological order or associated with my podcast as well. But, you know, if a if a good author comes up, I will try to bring them in to have a discussion whenever I can on whatever topic they're an expert in. So, as I said, we're up to 1779, so several years into the war. We're really just getting into the beginning of the Southern Campaign at the moment. In fact, next week I'm going to go back and talk about Fort Morris in Georgia, where the British follow up on their capture of Savannah. We'll be moving, as I said, a lot more into the Southern Campaign over the next year or two as we get into 1779, 1780. I did get a tweet from Founder of the Day saying he's calling in. Unfortunately, I don't see where that's happening. And I apologize. As I said, this is my first live episode ever. It's my first time using this platform. So if I am unable to interact with you, that's probably a sign of my inability to figure out how this whole thing works. Jason, you may know, runs a YouTube channel. Jason Mandris runs a YouTube channel called Founder of the Day. He releases a new email almost every single day talking about some of the more obscure players uh, in the American Revolution and the founding of the United States. So I find it very interesting. He also has a YouTube channel where he discusses a lot of these same people. Uh, also runs Trivia Nights for the American Revolution, a whole lot of really interesting stuff. So if you haven't had a chance to check him out, go to YouTube, check out and search for Founder of the Day, or um, go to founderoftheday.com. Somebody else who also had agreed to participate uh, was Lee Wright, who runs History Camp. For those of you who aren't familiar with History Camp, it's typically a live event, an all-day event that happens in various cities around the country. It got started in Boston. Uh, there are ones in Virginia, Colorado, a few other places as well. We tried to start one in Philadelphia last year, but it got quashed, unfortunately, by the pandemic. But we hope to get that going again next year. Because so much got canceled from the pandemic, History Camp is holding a live online episode this year called History Camp America. It's going to happen next weekend. It will involve, like the live episodes or live events, the ability to listen to a multitude of speakers on a wide variety of topics. Basically, there's you know six or seven different time slots. In each time slot, there's usually five or six different speakers, so you can pick which speaker you want to listen to. And it's as I said, it's an all-day event. Usually, these things happen live. We all go to a building and we're all in one place and can work with one another. That was impossible this year because of the pandemic. So they're doing a virtual all day online event next Saturday. If you're at all interested, go to historycamp.org for more details. Michael? Hello? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Well, I made it. I'm in. This is Jason. 
Wonderful. Jason from the founder of the day. Glad to have you here. Yeah, so, thank yeah, you so much. You're live and online. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about founder of the day? I gave a brief explanation, but you can probably do a much better job. Well, I heard you. You did a, you did a fantastic job, just like you always do. Uh, yeah, founder of the day. I uh, Every day on my website, founder of the day, I release an article and on YouTube, a corresponding video about a different American founder. Uh, at this point, 360, however, days a year. Uh, we also do some fun things at night. Like you said, uh, we do trivia on Fridays. So if you like the American Revolution trivia, come to that. Thursdays, I do a live wrap up of the founders of the week. Uh, and Monday through Wednesday at night, I uh, do various different things. We've had several interviews, uh, including, I don't want to say yours truly, uh, but you, Mr. Troy, have been <laughs> on on several occasions. Uh, we've talked about the British a handful of times and I'm very fortunate that several author, authors and other people involved with studying the American Revolution have come by to hang out and chit-chat over there. Yeah, I've heard a lot of great people conversing on your show. It's, it's been really interesting. And of course, I've had a lot of fun. We, as you said, we've been talking about the British generals for the last few weeks. Uh, we're about to start a new series on the continental generals. We're going to focus on the, the major generals of the American Revolution. And there's, there's several dozen of them, so that may take a lot of time for us yeah. if we end up going through all of them. And, and there's a couple of really important br brigadier generals that we'll probably get to as well. Right. But what we've been trying to do is give a you know, short bio, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes they go 30 or 40 minutes um, into the backgrounds of these people, the men who led the revolution. And we've been focusing on Great Britain up until now, but yeah, we're going to turn to the Continental Army. Um, in the next few weeks. I am very excited. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been a good time. Um, I should also mention, and to you as well, uh, Jason also has a mailing list, which you can sign up for on his website. I love getting those emails every single morning, reminding me of a quick bio on a, new, on a founder that's usually only a couple paragraphs long, so it's not like I'm reading an entire book every day. But it's a nice introduction to a lot of people, some of whom I've never even heard of before you mentioned them to me. Well, yeah, you know, I started several years ago thinking eventually I'll have to repeat these guys. But uh, there are just so many people involved with the American Revolution in so many different ways. Uh, and what I try and do is, like you said, I try and keep it very short. I don't want to take up everyone's whole day, but I try and find what makes each individual, you know, a little bit unique where their place in the founding, uh, you know, We've gone through the big names, of course, but we also, you know, look at the Tench Tillmans who rode from Yorktown to the Continental Congress to say we won the war or the uh, various, uh, the, the Nathaniel Gorham, who was head of the Committee of the Whole of the Constitutional Convention, which is a really important job that doesn't get a lot of shine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I don't think anybody needs another summary of George Washington's life. Hopefully we all know who he is by now. <laughs> Um, but th that's the really great thing is, you know, a lot of people think of the founders as just, you know, the men who signed the Declaration of the Constitution. And they're, of course, very important members of that. But there were, you know, hundreds of men who, you know, led in the army or who served in state governments, uh, served in militias, uh, formed on all sorts of different ad hoc things. And then there were other people, too. One of the things that we often over uh, or pass over are um, women and minorities because they really had no official place in government. So covering some of the 
the women and slaves and freed blacks and Native Americans who played a role in the war as well as, you know, it's all part of what led to what became the United States. Right. It's nice to think that uh, George Washington just single-handedly defeated an army and Thomas Jefferson wrote the declaration and that's that. But there were, like I said, there's thousands of people who contributed on all sorts of levels. Uh, one of the really interesting things about the revolution from my perspective. Absolutely. It was an entire generation that, that brought about the revolution and independence and the creation of the United States. And, and there, there are a million little stories in there, all of which are very interesting. And you're, you're making that come alive. And I definitely appreciate that. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, so I, I was looking through your, your comments and a question popped out. It's a little bit of a turn from what we're talking about, but a question popped out. Someone asked uh, if we could name four or five sites in New York or Pennsylvania that people interested in the revolution should visit. Um, and that's true. As someone who's lived around New York for most of my life, uh, I just, uh, that caught my eye. And I just want to give a shout out to the, um, the Culper, uh, the, uh, the Tri-City Tours. I forget the exact name, but the Culper Spy Ring Tours out of Setauket, New York. Uh, if you find yourself on Long Island and you're interested in like the TV show Turn is based on the Culper Spy Ring, uh, I really recommend taking that tour, which you can either do on foot, by bike, or by kayak. Um, it's also not far from the William Floyd Estate, a signer of the Declaration. So I want to give a, I saw that question. I wanted to give a shout out. I think you in Pennsylvania can answer the Pennsylvania questions better than I could. Yeah, I actually work in Philadelphia. I work across the street from Independence Hall, which is just a really amazing place to, to you know, be every day. I, I find it really enjoyable. Uh, I met a guy a couple of years ago uh, who um, his name is Kyle Jenks, and he does a James Madison inter uh, impersonation. Um, and he offers tours in Philadelphia of Old Town. Uh, sometimes he works with a woman who portrays Dolly Madison and they take you around old town and show you a lot of the really interesting sites that are there. Not only the really famous ones, but some that, that you would not ordinarily see on a tour. Uh, so if anybody's interested, I'll put up a link for him, um, as well as the, the one you mentioned in the show notes, if anybody's interested in, in seeing a tour in Philadelphia or New York, those are two really good ones that you should check out. Um, I find really interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Kyle. He's he's been on the show a few times too. He's really knowledgeable. Uh, he is James Madison from time to time, as you said. Yeah, he appears as James Madison, and on the tours, he actually dresses up as James Madison and inherit. Inhabit, yeah, can I use a big word? Inhabits the character of James Madison during the tour. So it's it's really kind of an interesting tour to take. There's also some. Uh, I'm going to forget the name of it now, but there's a, a really good tour up at Washington's Crossing as well uh, that takes you through the, um, um, you know, Washington crossed the Delaware, and then he attacked Trenton, and then he marched up to Princeton. And that whole tour is part of a, um, uh, a bus tour that you can take. Um, and I'm going to forget the name of it, but I will put it in the show notes. Uh, that's another really good one you might want to try. But, yeah, there's a, there's a few really good ones out there. I agree. I wonder, so, you know, I've always wanted to take a trip out to, like, uh, York and Lancaster to see where those capitals were. I wonder if you're familiar with any of the sites out there. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's a whole lot to see out there or not. That's a good question. I, I, I actually have driven through York and Lancaster on my way to other places, and I've never 
bothered to stop and really look to see if there's uh, something interested related to the revolution there. I'm not sure um, how much is left. They were the capitals of revolutionary America from time, I don't want to say time to time, very briefly. <laughs> well, Lancaster was capital for a day. York was capital for a few months yeah, um, when the British, yeah, the, yeah, the British occupied Philadelphia. So the, the uh, Continental Congress met out in York. They were also in Baltimore, of course, for a, a few months a year prior to that when the British threatened to invade Philadelphia. So and I don't think there's a whole much, a whole bunch left in Baltimore from that time as well. But that was, of course, in the middle of downtown York, of course, has never been built up into a major city. So there's probably a little more to see there. You know what else is interesting? If, uh, back up in New York and uh, it's in Rome, New York, which is by Utica in central New York, um, Fort Stanwix. It's a I th- I'm under I understand it's a reconstruction of the original fort, uh, but it was for a time named Fort Schuyler. And it's where a lot of the action took place. Uh, one of the three prongs that were supposed to arrive for the Battle of Saratoga. Right. Was, it took place out there. So. Yeah, that's where um, yeah, Benedict Arnold cut, cut them off and sent them packing before they could join up with the rest of uh, Burgoyne's army. Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting site. I've never had the opportunity to be there. But, but not only that, but there were several uh, Native American treaties that were signed on that site as well. So it has a lot of history to it. It's an interesting place. I know I'm going, I think you're going uh, later this summer to Fort Plain uh, for their uh, American Revolution gathering, which takes place in August. Uh, So Fort Plain is another uh, New York Revolutionary War site, one that I will be visiting for the first time this summer, uh, but another one people might want to check out. Yeah, I think the title is the Mohawk Valley American Revolutionary, American Revolution Conference. I believe is the the full title if someone's Googling it. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm very excited. I, I've been there, uh, not last year, of course, but uh, the previous year. And there's a whole slew of wonderful, knowledgeable people who come hang out and give presentations. And it's just uh, a romping good time, as they say. Yeah. And of course, I'm, I'm much more familiar with the area around Philadelphia, where we have places like uh, Fort Mifflin, uh, which is a, still a fort down near Philadelphia Airport, which is still in existence. You have Valley Forge, which is nearby. You have uh, Cliveden, which is the home in Germantown, which was the center of the Battle of Germantown, uh, is still available to see as a museum. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of other real, and of course, the battlefields, all the major battlefields around here, like uh, Brandywine and Germantown and Monmouth. A lot of really great places to visit and see that are, are still kept open and hopefully now are beginning to open up again after the pandemic is coming to an end. Yeah. So you had another question about uh, Ben Franklin's son being a loyalist. Someone asked, yes. uh, how is it that Ben Franklin's son was a loyalist? I'd love to hear a bit more about that story. Uh, uh, ben, yeah, ben Franklin's son was a bastard, and I mean that in the legal sense, not in the, <laughs> um, in the attacking sense. Uh, he, he was Ill- illegitimately conceived. His mother abandoned him and let Dad Ben to take care of him. Dad, of course, virtually abandoned him and handed a kid over to his wife to raise. Um, and Ben Franklin spent most of his life then in London, leaving his wife in Philadelphia to raise the kids. But he did care about William Franklin and helped him get a position within the royal government. And William Franklin eventually became governor of New Jersey before the war and really felt that 
he had a lot to be thankful for from the British government and considered himself a loyal uh, British subject and a friend of the king. So when the revolution came, even though his father ended up joining the Patriots, uh, William Franklin remained a loyalist, a steadfast uh, supporter of the king, and he was arrested and thrown in prison and eventually exchanged and spent the rest of his life uh, in London after the war. Uh, this was really not an uncommon thing. Uh, you see a great many patriot leaders who have brothers, cousins, fathers, sons, whatever, who um, join the other side uh, for whatever reason. This really was a civil war. This was, you know, people really had strong disagreements. And um, so, yeah, there were a great many people, families that were broken up over this dispute. Yeah, and I can see, I can understand where William Franklin was coming from. I mean, as the colonial assemblies are being dissolved and the powers being assumed by the royal governors, being one of those royal governors, it was probably pretty nice. <laughs> uh, though, to be fair, we should give a shout out to John Trumbull in Connecticut, who was a royal governor who stuck around with the Patriots. Uh, well, John Trumbull was one of two governors who did not owe his appointment to the king. He was actually elected, as was the governor of Rhode Island. Now, the, the governor of Rhode Island, who was elected at the time of independence, ended up supporting the loyalists anyway, and he got thrown out in favor of a different governor very quickly. So Trumbull actually was the only governor who made it from the colonial period to the independence period while still remaining governor. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, note specification to make because uh, I, I Trumbull as things are going wrong in Massachusetts uh, as one of those neighboring colonies all the militiamen uh, I, you see him writing General Gage early on trying to say like hey man cool down over there <laughs> be really careful because they're really upset in Connecticut I can't imagine how they feel in Massachusetts I'm paraphrasing of course yeah but then when that doesn't work, you see him corresponding with George Washington very heavily throughout, especially the early stages of the war. We strayed a little bit from William Franklin, but that's okay. Going back very quickly to William Franklin, we should probably note that uh, William Franklin was the, as you said, bastard son of Benjamin Franklin. And his bastard son, William Temple Franklin, was a patriot and joined his grandfather, Benjamin, as a... Uh, secretary of sorts when they went over to France and it was right there when they were signing the Treaty of Paris and everything. So one of That's the right. Franklin men <laughs> didn't come along for the ride, but the other two were very important to international affairs. Yeah. Uh, William Franklin, when he was arrested, his son was basically put in the care of Benjamin Franklin. And, and yes, he uh, <laughs> raised the grandson to be a good patriot. No, as I said, we see we see a lot of divisions like that. I I, I can think of several uh, Revolutionary War generals who ended up fighting um, their brothers who served as officers in the British Army or at least as loyalists in the army. Uh, so it, it was not uncommon at all. And of course, you occasionally had people who served on both sides and the same person, like Benedict Arnold. <laughs> but that's a unique <laughs> situation. A former good, American hero, Benedict Arnold. People really get angry at me when I say Benedict Arnold was an American hero, but yeah, there were a handful of years there where he was the guy. 
<laughs> yeah, he was really America's top combat general in the early years of the war. Uh, he, I think, single-handedly saved um, Saratoga, although Horatio Gates gets the, the credit for that, being the overall commander. But if uh, Arnold had not stopped the, the British support at Fort Stanwix, and if he had not taken the more aggressive stance that he did at, at first and second Saratoga uh, against Gates's orders, by the way, um, I think the outcome could have been very different. Uh, Arnold, of course, was also critical uh, in holding up the British a year before, um, ending up fighting uh, a naval battle on Lake Champlain, which I think was also very critical to the outcome of the war. So he, he had been involved in quite a bit of combat, and his decision to switch sides was was unfathomable. He was really one of the most senior generals in the Continental Army, and as I said, had one of the best reputations as a combat commander. I kind of I've made this uh, comparison or analogy before, but it's sort of like if um, General Patton in 1944 had decided to switch sides and join the German army because he wanted to fight the Soviet Union or something. It, it's just it, it would just be so bizarre as to be unfathomable. Yeah, no, I've actually I've quoted you in private conversations with that reference because it really is such a good I mean, if he had died, even Arnold knew if he had died in one of the battles. I mean, we might have our representatives meeting in Arnold, D.C. Like, I mean, and maybe that's a little extreme, but no, he would, it's not. <laughs> like, he was, from my understanding, the soldier's role model. Like the, the revolutionary soldiers themselves. That's why yeah. the, the actions of Saratoga were so important everything else he did. Right. Well, he, he really knew how to win battles. He knew how to rally men, how to fight, how to take the fight to the enemy, how to, you know, take advantage of, of timing and, and all sorts of things. And, yeah, he was just a great combat leader. We're, I, I'm, of course, starting to get into his fall from grace, shall we say, uh, in, in the podcast. He... Uh, of course, married a loyalist uh, 18-year-old girl, I'll call her, in Philadelphia, Peggy Shippen. Uh, a lot of people will blame her for his uh, switching sides, which I don't think is entirely fair. I think she probably encouraged him, but I think he had felt that there was a lot of ingratitude for what he had done. He kind of saw the uh, – he had been court-martialed for what he considered really minor activities, uh, other people called corruption – so yeah, it's it's. I would argue he, Joseph Reed and his entourage were just as culpable as Peggy Shippen was. Well, yeah, Joseph Reed was the guy who had him court-martialed. Essentially, they thought yeah. he was just he was being too friendly with the loyalists, and he was using his position as military governor of Pennsylvania for finan personal financial gain and. Reed was having none of that. He really went after him. And that, at that point, Arnold really felt that um, his country had betrayed him, not the other way around. And at that point, he was going to uh, basically sell out the, the people. And, and the people sometimes ask, you know, is, is what he did really so bad? And I have to say yes to that. I mean, not only did he switch sides, but he was prepared to turn over West Point to the British and surrender an army of thousands of men who were, you know, put themselves in service under him uh, to become British prisoners and probably die in British prison ships in New York. 
So he was really selling out his comrades in arms in, in every way you could in order to, um, to make this switch. So even if you felt like maybe he had some justification or provocation for what he did, there, you know, I could probably name dozens of other officers who felt exactly the same way and didn't uh, make the switch that he did. Right. And it's a lot of people. Fascinating, too, because just before this, you know, right before the court martial, he was leaving Philadelphia. He got on his horse and was leaving Philadelphia to go to New York to buy a large, with his own money, he was going to buy a huge amount of land in upstate New York so that he could then sell that off in lots to his soldiers who. When the war ended, he didn't think Congress was going to be able to pay them. You know, it, that is what happened. You know, many places around the country, including upstate New York, were divided off. And instead of paying the soldiers, they gave them land. But Arnold, halfway through the war, quit Philadelphia and was literally leaving Philly to go buy land to distribute to his these same soldiers when he's called back for his court martial. And then it's those same men he was trying to reward for their service that he as you said ends up attempting to betray and be put on ships to ugh <laughs> we all yeah. know what happens on those british ships no more more people died on british prison ships than died on the battlefield it was just a really horrific existence yeah. um but yeah i've been getting well, a couple of te- benedict arnold today <laughs> yeah now, I, I um, I've been getting a couple of text messages from Lee Wrights, who unfortunately has been trying to join us, but probably because of my technical inability, I'm unable to see him and allow him in. He wanted me to mention a couple of things about History Camp, which is taking place next Saturday. Uh, one of the neat things they're doing this year, in addition to the direct presentations that are that are happening, uh, they're doing a couple of site tours. I know they're doing a site of um, a tour of Fort Ticonderoga a tour of uh, Buckman's Tavern in Lexington Green, which is, um, I think that one's being led by J.L. Bell, who, uh, no, I'm sorry, J.L. Bell's doing the one, um, George Washington in Cambridge and the Siege of Boston. Uh, but many of you may be familiar with J.L. Bell's blog, um, 1775 Boston or Boston 1775, um, which is a really amazing blog about the American Revolution, especially the, uh, the New England aspects of it. Um, really gets into tons of detail. He's been doing it for many, many years and manages to come up with a new topic every single day of the year, it seems like. Sometimes he comes out with two in a day. I don't know where the man finds the time to research and write all of it, but it gets into some really obscure stuff and really interesting. So anyway, J.L. Bell's doing a tour um, as part of History Camp of, of Cambridge and Siege of Boston, which should be really interesting. I will say, um, if Lee is having trouble getting in, uh, you had sent me a private email as a host, and then yeah. I had to sign out of Podbean on my phone, go through the email, and then sign back in, and then suddenly it worked. So, Lee, if you want to give that a shot. Okay, uh, I did the same thing for Lee, so I sent an email to his history list account. I don't know if he's able to get in or not, but I guess we'll see. Okay. There's I'm just trying to be helpful. I, I should also say I, I do see we got a shout-out uh, on the messages here. For uh, the Patriot Tours New York City, uh, Karen Q, who has been a guest on my show, she is fantastic. She also uh, she has her own character, as opposed to being a, a real person. She has come up with a, a character whose name escapes me, uh, but Mrs. Q at the time will take you on tours of New York City. But she does a fantastic job down there, uh, additionally. Great. I assume it's focused on you know the Revolutionary War era. 
uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I should have specified that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, her character, Mrs. Q, takes you through. I believe they go to France's Tavern. I, I unfortunately have not been to New York take the tour yet, but I have spoken to Karen on several occasions. She is wonderful and super informative. Uh, she had written a book about Theodosia Burr, uh, additionally. So she knows a lot about that family, has a little bit of sympathy for the Burr family. Again, I've already uh, been an apologist for Benedict Arnold in this conversation. I probably should not do the same thing for Aaron Burr. Uh, just keeping an open mind for back then. That's all. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> is somebody else there? Hey, guys. This is Lee. Thanks for that uh, tip on how to get in. Oh, Lee. Thanks. Good to hear Absolutely. from you. It took me a while, too. Uh, you know what? I will sign off. Lee, nice to talk to you. Michael, thank you for having me, but I'll let you step in uh, All right. and chit-chat with Lee. Jason Manders, founder of the day. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Well, Mike, let's start with the fact that uh, History Camp Philadelphia is going to happen next year. And the reason it's going to happen in large part is because uh, all of your leadership and uh, encouragement and and, and just uh, downright insistence that we have History Camp Philadelphia. So we're excited about that. Um, yeah, I can't wait for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, appreciate your mentioning History Camp America uh, this next Saturday. So uh, a couple of thoughts. Let me, let me add a couple of the other sessions that might be of interest, especially to folks who are interested in uh, the Revolutionary War. Um, one is called Inconvenient Founders, Thomas Young and the Forgotten Disruptors of the American Revolution. You mentioned the Buckman Tavern and Lexington Green Tour. There's also Lafayette's Farewell Tour and National Coherence, the Lafayette Trail. Um, <clears throat> Don Haggist, who many people probably know, is doing a session that is um, uh, darkly interesting and chilling entitled Surviving the Lash, Corporal Punishment, and British Soldiers' Careers. Uh, we are also, as you mentioned, doing the Fort Ticonderoga. Port Ticonderoga tour that will include some behind the scenes places that even if you were there in person, you wouldn't have a chance to see. There is, um, there's the uh, Long Island amphibious assault, excuse me, the amphibious assault on Long Island. Uh, another called saving Quin John Quincy Adams from alligators and mole people. Um, <laughs> Boston's green dragon tavern, the headquarters of the revolution. Uh, we're also doing a, a walking tour of Marblehead, Massachusetts. And I'll bet people uh, listening will know of the uh, <clears throat> the feats of the sailors of Marblehead who uh, helped Washington escape New York and later cross the Delaware. Uh, Marblehead is considered the uh, home of the or the um, uh, home of the American Navy, founding of the American Navy, dates to 1629. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, town, and we're doing a walking tour with uh, with Judy Anderson. Um, you mentioned the John John Bell walking tour. Um, John and I filmed that <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago. We started in Sudbury, we went to Framingham, we went to Cambridge, uh, and we ended the at night uh, on Dorchester Heights, looking over Boston. And uh, John just did a fabulous job. And you're exactly right. His his blog, Boston 1775. Is, is just amazing uh, day in and day out. Uh, you mentioned Kyle Jenks. He's doing a session with Jane Hampton Cook on the First Amendment origin stories uh, and uh, him as, a, uh, as James Madison answering questions. 
another to arms, how Adams, Revere, Mason, and Henry helped to unify their respective colonies. Uh, and there's some more. So you, so, so folks who are listening who are interested in the Revolutionary War should know that there are many, many sessions. And in addition to uh, the sessions live, uh, folks who have registered will have exclusive access to the archives for a year. And so that means that um, with one registration, one family can both participate live and uh, listen and uh, view all of the sessions for uh, for a year. Um, yeah, that's really great because one of the limitations of going to history camp is every session hour, you can only go to one of maybe five or six different sessions that are going on. So this will give people an opportunity to go back and maybe listen to some that they had, weren't able to see live because they were a second or third choice for that time slot. Well, you're exactly right. And and we hear that a lot, right? People say, one of the things I love about History Camp is the variety, all these choices. One of the things I hate about History Camp is having to miss the other sessions going on at the same time. And so we address that with uh, videos of every single session um, that we're doing at, at History Camp America. Now, to the person who asked the question, will there be History Camp Boston? There certainly will. It will be next year. Uh, we've already uh, been in contact with the Suffolk Law School here in Boston, where we host that. Uh, they've told us it's a little bit too early to nail down a date, but but we are keen to do that. Um, Mike, we should also mention that one of the reasons that uh, History Camp America is is happening and we're getting the word out is because you're a part of it with a, a session, and I, you even have a dis you even have a discount code for folks. Uh, I do. You, you can use uh, AMREV podcast. No, sorry. Just AMREV. No, I'm going to get it wrong. I got to look it up. I, you know what? I think <laughs> you should look it up because I think it's something like AMREV 21. I uh, think it's AMREV 21, but I want to yeah. make sure that I, yeah. I, I've written it so many times. Um, I, I will definitely put the discount code in my show notes. I, I've been a huge fan of History Camp for forever. I've been going, well, going for several years before everything got canceled last year. Um, but I've been to several of them. I know the one in Boston is the, the biggest and oldest and, and, and it's a really good one. I've been to Virginia and I've, well, I got all ready for Philadelphia and they got pulled out from under me. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I, I agreed to kind of be a big supporter of, uh, of History Camp America this year. Well, Mike, let me mention, uh, let me mention just a couple of other things. Uh, you mentioned uh, Philadelphia, uh, Boston. Uh, next year, we are also aiming for uh, Richmond, and uh, we'll have, again, the, the history camp that, that takes place outside of Denver. Um, there are also history camps that take place in Des Moines and in western Massachusetts. History camp, the ones that I was mentioning just a minute ago, are all brought to you by a nonprofit organization that Carrie Lund and I founded called The Pursuit of History. And we did something earlier this year that I've, I've been eager to do for, uh, for several years and it all came together and it's gorgeous. We did a limited edition print of Fort Ticonderoga. Now, many of the folks who are listening have probably seen the great uh, WPA era posters of the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, why didn't they do posters of the uh, some of America's great historic sites? Uh, now it turns out they did do one, but uh, uh, we we thought there should be more, and so we started what is 
going to be a, a series. Uh, and when we, when we announced the first one, we didn't tell people it's going to be a series, but our hope was that it would be well received. It has been. And so we are going to do them uh, twice a year, covering a wide range of historic sites. The first one, like I said, Fort Ticonderoga and uh, information about that is at the pursuit of history. Org. Let me mention just a couple of other things if I can. And Mike, really appreciate the opportunity to sure. share some of these things with uh, with your your audience. Um, we every Thursday night have a live discussion that's streamed at historycamp.org with an author. And just last, uh, just earlier this week, we covered uh, Peggy Shippen with an author that had written about. Uh, Peggy Shippen and uh, Lucy Fluker Knox, and it was a, a great discussion. Uh, earlier this year, we covered uh, Benjamin Arnold. Now, those talks every Thursday night are on a, on a wide range of topics, and we, we've gone up as, as as in terms of history as recently as the Space Age. Uh, but would encourage people to check those out. Those we're we're booked through the third quarter of this year. And right now we're booking the fourth quarter every Thursday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. And again, those are at historycamp.org. Let me mention just one other thing. And we just announced this a couple of days ago. Um, as, as you know, Mike, maybe a few other folks do too, there's something called the History List and the History List Store. That's the first thing that I started several years ago as a, a platform for um, organizations to use to list sites and events and exhibits and individuals to, to find those. Um, I started the history of the store a few years after that, and am uh, like some of the um, some of my other friends who who have a passion for history, uh, am sponsoring and participating in History Camp as uh, as 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 a sponsor, as someone who's offered up merchandise that's part of that exclusive box that we put together as part of the registration. So one of the things that we've that I I did in 2017 was I. <clears throat> create something called Revolutionary Superheroes. Yeah. I've thought that there's a big passion, big interest in, in, in superheroes. And I thought, do people really realize the extraordinary uh, contributions and risks that uh, the men and women of the revolution made? And so in an effort to kind of popularize that, identified kind of five, uh, <clears throat> uh, the Adamses, uh, Franklin, uh, Hamilton and Washington, and wanted to then do uh, a pro have a process where people could nominate and vote on who they thought should be in this group. Well, it took us a few years to uh, to build that platform. We had several other projects, but we just announced that this last week. Uh, so, if people are curious, they go to the history list. There's a link there to the history list store, and there they can find our list of 57 nominated individuals with bios that John Bell wrote. And if they're interested, um, they can vote with qualifying purchase or they can just check out the bios. It's really fascinating. Uh, my guess is that most of the people on this on this pod, uh, listening right now and in your podcast probably are familiar with maybe roughly half of those, some maybe more, but I'm, I'm convinced that there's no one out there who will, who will be familiar with every single one of those uh, 57 individuals. And John did a great job with the bios. So something else that, that that's fun for folks who have a passion for uh, the revolutionary era and a, a strong belief as I know you do too, Mike, that it's, it's terribly important that more people have a deeper understanding of our nation's history. Oh, absolutely. I got to put in a plug for Robert Morris to get on that, that t-shirt. 
he's 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 on the list. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have had we've I've had two people write in and complain about Nathaniel Green not being on the list, and okay. he will be next time. The reason he's not on the list is simply that the list was compiled based on uh, responses to posts we did on social media. Fifty-seven is a pretty good number if you think about um, you know representing kind of a broad swath of individuals from all sorts of backgrounds, different nationalities, and so forth that participated in our country's founding. Yeah, no, it should be really interesting to see who who comes out on top. I did finally find the coupon code. You're right. It was AMREV21. So you can save um, $5 off the ticket price if you do want to go to history camp still for next week. Um, one thing we you, you kind of mentioned, but we should say directly, history camp, of course, is much more than the American Revolution. They cover a lot of great other um, eras of mostly American history as well. Um, so if people have an interest beyond the American Revolution, which, you know, why would you? But I guess some people do for some reason. Um, you know, you want to talk about the Civil War, World War II, World War I, or other great events in history. A lot of that stuff is all covered by History Camp. Uh, the other thing, although the, the all-day History Camp um, does have a charge for it, the uh, uh, weekly uh, events that you're holding virtually every every Thursday are free of charge for anyone Absolutely. to participate in, right? Absolutely. And if folks want to check out the schedule or the uh, we have video previews of the tours that we're doing, the walks and so forth, those are all at historycamp.org. So, Mike, it's, it's really cool that you've done this. You know, when we when we met and you told me about the founding of your of your podcast and the what year plus, maybe multiple years that you put in to just planning and getting ready to do this, I was really impressed and uh, and and you've you've really delivered um, week in and week out, and and thrilled that you're part of History Camp and and will be part of uh, uh, not just History Camp America but also History Camp Philadelphia when we do that next year. Absolutely, looking forward to that. Also looking forward to History Camp Boston and and maybe even Virginia as well if I can get down there. Indeed, indeed. Well, Mike, I, I'll uh, I'll I'll let other folks uh, participate. Um, the Podbean. Uh, platform seems to be an interesting one and maybe so feature rich. Um, it's a little bit challenging for the first time around, but uh, appreciate your patience and the opportunity to be part of the program. Yeah, absolutely. Glad you could make it. Thank you, Mike, and enjoy the rest of the day and happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day to everyone. To you as well. Okay, that was Lee Wright of History Camp America and the History List and the Pursuit of History. He's got a lot of things going on. Uh, but yeah, a lot of interesting stuff happening. Uh, Lee touched on a conversation we had several years ago where I talked about the um, the origin of my podcast, um, which I, I really started almost as an afterthought. I was, I was interested in doing a blog on the American Revolution um, and ended up wanting to do a podcast then. And I spent about a year uh, before I published my first episode um, just writing episodes and really familiarizing myself with how to do a podcast, uh, working on my speaking, working on finding the right microphone, all that sort of good stuff before I started the podcast by releasing episode one in 2017. So I, I really started this whole project in early 2016, just a little tidbit on, on my backstory for those of you who are interested. Some of you have asked where this podcast is going. And as I said, we're in, in 1779 now. We have to get to 1783. And I'll be lucky if I can cover two years of the war 
in one calendar year in, in 52 weekly episodes. So we're probably looking at another two or three years before we reach the end of the war. Uh, whether I go beyond that, I'm still kind of undecided. I might want to talk about the post-war years a little bit, but I probably won't go into as much detail as I do about the war years. Uh, some of you remember uh, at the very beginning of my podcast, I covered things like the French and Indian War and the pre-war protests, and I may have only done you know, maybe six or ten episodes that covered an entire year. So I may do something like that in the post-war years where we talk about um, the, the, the struggles under the Articles of Confederation and the, the, the events leading up to the Constitution. So there may be a little bit of time after we get to the end of the war where I continue on. I guess I'll just have to see where we are at that point. But anyway, um, as I said, I'm always trying new things. This was an experiment today doing a live episode. Uh, I appreciate anyone who stuck with me now for the over hour and 40 minutes that we've been on the air. I am getting ready to sign off, but I do appreciate it. I hope you all have a wonderful Independence Day, and I will hopefully be able to put up a recording of this for anyone who has missed it. Have a wonderful Independence Day to all of you, and I look forward to seeing you next week on the American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.